the Republican Party now has a completely different foreign policy than it did, you know, under the last Republican president. You know, George Bush never saw a war he didn't like. And now, uh, you know, the idea of giving guns to Ukraine is uh, complicated for some reason. So, like, I don't think that the average American voter holds strong beliefs on these things. I think it's more that people adopt the position of their party. Welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, everybody. We've been graced with many legendary guests on the podcast over the years. Legends of the mental health arena, serial entrepreneurs and professional athletes, but my guest today is truly one of the greats. I may be biased, but what he's managed to accomplish over a relatively brief professional career is impressive. He's a public sector servant working for the cities of Philadelphia, Alexandria, San Francisco, as well as on projects for national governments, foreign and domestic, in a consulting capacity. More importantly than any professional accolade, I know my brother John to be a man of integrity and class, making him an ideal guest for this program. He's known by many names to many people in many places, but to me, John is my older brother and someone who I'm immensely proud to put on the record. With this episode, he joins my sister, Megan, as a guest on the Bro Nouveau podcast and completes the trio. Welcome, John. Thank you, Thomas. That was very kind. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm late to the party and my, uh, partner Clay has already beat me here. So I'm, I'm ashamed to be late, but at least I'm here now. <laughs> You're here now. That's what's up. Well, thank you. Um, your, you know, your, your interests have always been varied and it led to a career in, in government, which we'll talk about. But one thing I want to lead off with is that politically it's a divisive time in case you haven't noticed. There's a lot of opinion, there's a lot of hot takes, there's a lot of media information being thrown around. And for me, the war in the Ukraine was kind of one of the strong reckoning moments of, okay, the information we're being fed is from a certain perspective. So how do you approach you know, media and taking inf- information and trying to suss out the truth? That's a that's a great that's a great question, Thomas. I'm surprised you asked it. I've I have a question for you though, which is, I've heard through uh, the grapevine that you have some COVID booster <laughs> skepticism. Is that is that true? Uh, no, I have my booster. Oh, okay. I don't know who and, was telling me that. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't particularly want to get another one. That's true. What is it? Is it just because you don't want to go back I to the doctor? <laughs> Okay. I would do it. I would do it. I I, I think if I, uh, but the, I'm sure there are people who don't who are sick of it. It's more fatigue. I would say. Okay. It's okay. It's a doctor sure. fatigue. All right. That's good to know because I was going to yell at you for that. That's <laughs> that's a good that's a good way to open. But I also wanted to open because recently you sent me a hour long YouTube video of Jared Kushner, <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is Thomas doing sending me this hour long video of Jared Kushner? But I think it all, I think that's an interesting thing to bring up in the context of what you asked me, right? Which is about the war in Ukraine and about media literacy. And I think, I think there's an interesting overlap in the kind of circles that you run in where you have this like men's health thing, right? Which is great and good, but also there's like a Venn diagram, right? And there's a little bit of an overlap between that audience and the like red pill, like man stuff. Right. And I know that you exist as sort of a counter to that, but that, that there's a lot of weird thinking that goes along on that side of the Venn diagram. And there's also this weird, like uh, California tech universe of people and the things that they think is just like bizarre too. And everybody, lives and operates in these like weird information bubbles and the things that people think about the things that people get annoyed about and the things that people consume 
can be can be wild. And the the things that like really, and most of the time it's harmless, right? Like nobody really cares if somebody goes off and buys a NFT, right? Which is a waste, like obviously stupid. But the reason I brought up the vaccine thing is that we have, you know, thousands of people who are dying every year in the United States because they like don't want to get a COVID booster. And it's, and it's, it's, it's pretty crazy because when I was younger, I thought that people like were just being ill-informed because they thought it was fun. But when you see people literally dying after consuming information that's wrong, you, you get a perspective on it, which is like people are actually really confused. Um, and people really believe these like nuts things. And once you believe something, it's really hard for you to, to, to admit you were wrong. Right. That's just like human nature. Um, so I thought, I thought it would be a good topic for us to kind of walk through it and, and think through that because it's a, it's a real, it's a real problem. And the, and the reason I bring up Jared Kushner is because he, uh, <laughs> is a, you know, he's a Nepo baby, but he also has this weird, like, can you, can you define that for us? His only accomplishment in life is who his daddies are. <laughs> he's a Nepo baby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, like, you know, his dad was rich, so then he's rich, and then his other dad is, you know, the president. So for whatever reason, he becomes, like, the envoy to the Middle East, right? And uh, and then he's on a podcast talking about the Middle East. It's like, who the fuck cares what Jared Kushner thinks about the Middle East, right? Like, what do you, like, if the king of England came up and was like, oh, this is what I think about Palestine, would you be like, I care? <laughs> it's like, no, man, this is just a guy who married somebody, but he doesn't have any qualifications to talk about this. Um and so let's let's start there right like what were you thinking when you were like i want to watch jared kushner (laughs) (laughs) why are you consuming uh, bad media (laughs) i was i was impressed with him because my perception was that similar to what you're echoing which was like this guy's an idiot but he obviously was there to pump up the trump administration and reach a wide audience. There was a, the Lex Friedman podcast, which is also in that Venn diagram of like conspiracy theories. And then also like science people. And <laughs> I, I was, I, I was impressed because I had never even heard him talk before. And I, and there was more, I wanted to send it to you because I don't see a lot of examples of politically powerful people doing long vulnerable conversations like that that are not necessarily scripted there's transparency there's minimal editing and i think it's cool that way and that is one area that i would actually say the i I would want to see more from democratic leaders is that type of like unscripted not unscripted but maybe a little less um of a like perfectly polished presentation and actually just like, let me hear you think about these ideas and talk about your ideas and then we can evaluate it as instead of uh, just being like, like Trump. I mean, I know he's ridiculous, but he does podcasts and I think that's an advantage to reaching his audience and, and undecided voters because it's more relatable. Um, So that's kind of more why I sent it to you because I knew you would think, or define him as a Nepo baby. And I wanted to get your take on like, hear him talk for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. That's interesting. And I think, I think that that's a fair point, right? Is like, there is a certain utility in, you know, going out and, and explaining yourself to people. I think that where I was coming from was more like, when you think about how you consume information, right? You can think about it as like, there's way more information in the world than you can possibly consume, right? Think about it like a diet, right? Like there's more food in the world than you can eat every day. And you can only consume a limited amount of things every day. And you should be thinking intentionally to some extent about what it is 
that you want to put in your body, right? And your brain is the same way. So for me, when I look at, you know, Jared Kushner, like dumbass, <laughs> wants 40 minutes of my time to talk about something, it's like, no, obviously I'm not going to listen to that. And, I, and I, I, let me let me pause here and say that, like, I particularly don't like the Jared Kushner thing for reasons specific to him, which are that, like, he he ran around pretending to be a diplomat and then as soon as he got out of office, solicited like $2 trillion from MBS, the, sorry, Mohammed bin Salam, um, the man who runs Saudi Arabia. And it's like, if you're going to pretend to be a diplomat, you cannot cash out on that immediately after leaving office. Right? Like, that is, that, that's like very questionable. So that's, that's one reason for my personal dislike. But I think the bigger picture is like, okay, let's pretend that you want to learn about what's going on in Israel, right? You have so much going on right now. It's a really tragic and confusing situation, much like Ukraine, the thing that you brought up before. Um, if you really actually wanted to understand it, right? Like if you wanted to fully wrap your arms around all of the complexity and nuance and a situation where, you know, two well-informed opinions looking at the same set of facts can have different conclusions, right? Something really complicated and hairy with a lot of history. You're going to have to spend years like reading books <laughs> to like fully, fully get it. And the reality is that you're not going to actually do that because we all have lives and we have things to do, but there are, you know, many, many different ways to speed up the process of understanding. And the best thing to do is to find people who know what they're talking about and let them do it for you, right? So in the particular instances you raised, right, about Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Palestine, there's like, what I would do if I wanted to learn about it is I'd go to the Brookings Institute and I'd read whatever 40-page dossier they put together on it. And that'll be written by like 12 distinguished ambassadors for <laughs> with like 3000 years of experience between them. And then you, you take that approach, right. And you, and you compare it against like listening to this guy talk for 40 minutes. And it's like, which of those is the best use of your time? Um, and I think that, sorry, I'm really, I'm going to keep going. So just jump in if you want me to stop talking. I think that there's a, there's a, there's this thing in the world where people have this deep mistrust of the actors that package the opinions and knowledge of people that actually know what they're talking about, right? And so that's on the right that manifests itself as, you know, the New York Times is horrible. And on the left, you've got, you know, whatever crazy things that, that uh, Kennedy is saying. Um, but the thing that I think gets really pernicious is when you decide that you're going to do your own research and then you do it badly. And then you have these like insane beliefs. Like, I think a good example of this is, is when you think about, um, the American civil war, right? pretty clear what happened in the American civil war. Everybody who like knows anything kind of agrees on like what the history of it is, but there's still this like very pernicious ideology of sort of the lost cause in the South. And that's like very thoroughly debunked. I don't think any like real historian is going to be like, Oh yeah, the, <laughs> it wasn't about slavery. It was about, you know, states rights or whatever. There's nuance, right. And there's complexity, but the big story is well known. But it doesn't stop people from being like, well, those Yankee historians are trying to tell me what to do. And I know because I read a book and it's like that's, you know, you, you do this thing where you, not you specifically, but people do this thing where they decide that they don't like the adult answer. So you go and you find some random screed by a prophet on the Internet. And then you're like, OK, this is what I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to take my information from. <laughs> and that and that's and that's not good. Right. And it's like. So, so the, we can have a conversation about, you know, are there a lot of things wrong with how information is presented to the American people? It's like, yes, absolutely. Like, I can talk a long time about how I don't like journalists and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you gotta, you gotta like curate the content that you're consuming 
and make sure that it's based on the very like there are a small number of people who actually understand what's going on for any given issue. And then there are thousands of people who are pretending to know what's going on. And you got to find, you can't even find the people who know what's going on. You got to find a trusted intermediary who knows how to find the people who knows what's going on. And then you have to read what they put out or watch what they put out. And so that's why, that's a long way of explaining, right. When I see, you know, whomever, what, you know, idiot is trying to explain whatever news is going on today. It's like, why are you looking at that guy when you could be, educating yourself yeah it's it's a fair point the issue is that 99 percent of americans have never heard of the brookings institute yeah and whether it's an access thing or a bandwidth thing or a time or caring enough to learn about it it's that level of nuance isn't going to get communicated and so i that's why I think the podcasting medium has taken off because it's direct to the ears of the people. And, you know, I'm the, you know, like in that situation, Kushner claimed, you know, this would not have happened if Trump was in office, for example, which is just a wild, kind of <laughs> wild, thing. wild thing to say. Yeah. You can't, you can't prove that you can't, it's just kind of, there's no grounding to no, no one can prove that. Um, but you know, he's out there doing that work, getting the message out. And just from a political strategy perspective, I'm like, okay, where are the defenders of the Biden administration or where is the, um, you know, head of state, head of the state department or like, you know, someone from the Biden administration sitting down, with Lex Friedman and talking about the idea. And I know it's not formal. It's not traditional. It's not, you know, even a good idea necessarily, but at least it shows a willingness to front up, if you will, and reach the people. And the yeah, reason I, I chose that example was because I feel like there's just a, a whole illiteracy on foreign affairs in the United States. We're so Americentric. We don't know anything about the world. And it's also the one of the forms of government that we have no direct ability to control or vote on. For example, like we don't get to, no one else, I don't even know how the State Department is authorized. Maybe it's by Congress, but we don't, the, the, the president sets the foreign policy agenda and it's not voted on by the people. True. Um, I, I do want to take one step back though and before we, we can talk about any of that, but I, I do want to make it explicit that I think what I'm saying is, is not political necessarily. Right. It's like, if you want to like, I could say all kinds of mean things about Jared Kushner and his father who staged a coup. But my point is more that like, we should not listen to people who don't know what they're talking about. Right. Like, I think that's, I think that's the point that I'm trying to get across is like, there's just so much, it's really hard to like, to find and understand good content about things right and i and i think to broaden the discussion a little bit to the russia thing that you're talking about i mean the war in ukraine is very complicated but it's not really that complicated right it's like oh well you invaded a sovereign country <laughs> that that's pretty much the problem here and it's crazy <laughs> to think that you know you have a whole state of people most of whom like genuinely believe that that was a, a good thing to do and that is to your point earlier right like that is what propaganda is like that is like that is the coercive effect of a nation state like lying to its people and manipulating them and controlling the media right when you like literally have state-controlled television and what i think is funny in the United States is when like people on the right are screaming about how they can't get the right information. Cause like the media controls, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, that's not true. Right? Like, if you look at like what actually happens in an authoritarian state where the media is controlled, like it's very different. Now you can, like I can, we can bang the drum a little bit and be like, okay, well, it's pretty obvious to me that, you know, the coverage the New York times puts out is greatly affected by 
the milieu of the people who work there, right, who are all pretty leftists and all pretty democratic. Like, that's uh, unarguably true. It's like saying that, like, tall people see the world from a tall perspective. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. But there's, like, worse things to point out, too, in our, our journalistic culture, right? Like, you have local newspapers that put out just, like, trash. Like, just trash. Like, some of the stuff the Inquirer puts out, the Philadelphia Inquirer, is, like, wrong. <laughs> and, like, a lot of the stuff that the SF Chronicle puts out is, like, not correct. That it's because you have, you know, journalists who think that they can just drop into a situation and understand it and then write up a summary and send it out. And it's like, well, you can't. Like, it's too complicated and you're not that smart. So, like, there is good critiques that you can make of American media but I don't think that one of them is that the left has a chokehold on media outlets, right? I think I think the more correct analysis is like we have a lot of people who don't know what's going on, pretending they know what's going on. And then you can also get into a different topic, I think, which is more like polarization, echo bubbles, like living in your own community and never looking outside of it. Um, but I think for the, the capstone on the point that I'm trying to make is like – be be conscious about what you consume and why you're consuming it. And if you really wanna, if you really wanna figure out like, and then I think that goes to your question, right? If you really wanna figure out like, how do you actually know what's going on? How do you find trusted sources? You gotta, you gotta. It takes a long time to like figure that out. You have to consume a lot of different stuff and compare them against each other, and then kind of get get a sense of where everybody sits on different issues and where their biases are. But I think a good a good rule of thumb is like listen to people who put out corrections, right? Like everybody gets things wrong and a good news source will correct themselves when they get things wrong. A bad news source doesn't, doesn't correct itself because it doesn't admit mistakes. Like for example, the, the, the sort of controversy du jour recently has been that New York times article about the, the rocket attack on the hospital in, in Palestine. And um, they blame the IDF and it wasn't really the IDF. And it's like, yeah, that was a mistake. Shouldn't have done that. But they did retract it, right? And they did issue an apology and said, well, that was wrong. And it's like, that's how you know that somebody's trying to tell you the truth is when they admit when they're wrong. Or we could say when there is enough public pressure to make them say they're wrong. Just to be <laughs> simple for a second. Well, what, well, what, uh, I, I agree with you. Well, what's your, well, what's your point there? Like, what do you think that there's a cabal of the New York Times to like bring down <laughs> Israel. Like that, that's the other thing that I think is weird and conspiratorial about a lot of it. I feel like some people like there's this desire to be manipulated, right? Like people want there to be a conspiracy. People want there to be like some kind of thing that's going on to confuse them. And to me, it's like, it's just, it's another heuristic. Yeah. But it's, it's also, like, I think oh, it's, well, this information yeah. disrupts my understanding of reality. It must be a conspiracy. I don't want to engage with it. Yeah. For sure, but it also it also to me it feels like an inability to admit that nobody gives a fuck about you, <laughs> right? Like nobody cares enough about you to try and manipulate you, dude. Like, <laughs> like you're you're not, not the world does not revolve around changing like confusing you. Like you don't exist in the minds of most other people, and that's fine. It's okay. It's not a critique. It's just that like take some comfort in your own like unimportance like the world is not conspiring against you hmm. yeah yeah I to reiterate what you're saying I agree completely to be intent to think about what you're consuming in media as similar to a diet you can only eat so much you can only read so much so try to be careful about what it is a, a nice site I like is called allsides.com. So they present the coverage of various news stories from news sources they rate as left, center, and right. So it's a cool resource to actually see live, you know, that comparison. Right. And I think I think another good another good way to think about it is like hype, right? Like the more hype there is around something, like the 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 faster it is removed from reality more of a thing it is currently than the faster we get away from like thoughtful rational analysis a good example of that is like crypto right like crypto 
is stupid. It's a stupid thing that has no practical application. It's never had any practical application. It was clearly just a speculative bubble. And, you know, I was screaming that for like three years and then everything blew up. And I was like, God, like anybody could have told you that. <laughs> but, but people just get hype about it. And then they talk themselves into. I remember I was in the garage of a mutual friend of ours. And uh, one of the people there was like trying to talk to us about, talk to me about how like, we need decentralized currency so that like when the world governments collapse, there'll be like Bitcoin. And it's like, dude, what are you talking about? Like you're clearly talking yourself into this hype thing that has no real need to exist. And it's, you know, so that's another thing to look out for, right? Is that when the train gets rolling and people start getting, when there's lots of like issues on Time Magazine with Sam Bakeman Freed in front of it and lots of like, you know, Elon Musk is tweeting about it. It's like, okay, I can be pretty sure that none of this is like, we've now entered the sphere of the, the industrial complex that like puts out stupid puff and thought pieces and uninformed perspectives is now engaged on this topic. So the next six months is going to be lost to like nonsense. That's a good, that's a good heuristic too, I think. I, th I think currencies are one thing but the blockchain itself for example for remittance is a great application because it lowers costs makes it instant but but why why do you have an opinion sorry it just from everything i understand about that application of the blockchain is it removes a lot of barriers and makes it cheaper to send money abroad which is a good thing for normal people Sure, and I, I'm sorry, I just didn't. I didn't want to cut you off before, but my my question is like, why do you have an opinion on one technical facet of the aspect of this obscure technology, right? Like, why do you know anything about that as opposed to anything else in life? You know, like there's so many things you could know, and like, why do you know that about All blockchain? Right, well, that's just a philosophical question at that point. <laughs> no, but it's not. That's my point, though. Is like, why do we bother? learning this shit about this dumb stuff that is just because like you know this is what people are excited about and this is what hype they're putting down our throats and it's like guys like again you can only consume so much information is this really how you want to like spend your day like learning about remittances through blockchain and i'm not picking on you well, uh, just, i don't know i'm just trying to make a you know meta comment <laughs> I'm an international man of mystery, so that's very relevant <laughs> for me. Yeah, you, know, you gotta smuggle money. Out of, you gotta smuggle money out of the country somehow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a fair point. I only know about that because I knew someone who works for um, Ripple. Yeah, who won the big case about they're not a they shouldn't be registered by the SEC. Um, as a uh, security, so that's that's why yeah. I know how that worked out for them. <laughs> they they won. I know, but and then this doesn't ripple like not exist anymore. <laughs> Feels like they could have been regulated uh, a little know. bit harder. I don't know what's happened since then. <laughs> yeah. So okay, let's a... let's talk let's let's talk bigger picture. So the classic. All right, here's 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 what we'll do. I'm gonna posit to you my understanding of something fundamental to American life. And then I want to get your take on if this is reflective of reality. Okay. Classic conservative ideology is fiscal responsibility, uh, smaller budget, or rather more budget discipline, for example. And then that drives a lot of the, like, for example, the critiques of the overstimulus of the stimulation of the economy and overprinting of the dollar, for example, has contributed mm -hmm. to inflation. That's like a talk track right now. Stemming from this orientation, how it's presented is that fiscal responsibility of the U.S. government debt is one of the driving factors of conservatism, for example. Mm -hmm. Is that – do you think that like overall conception of conservatism, do you think that's true? Because that's how it's taught, right? That's what I absorbed somehow talking mm -hmm. about like how do we get the information we have – you know, that's something I perceive to be true from what I've absorbed. What do, you, what do you think of that? So I don't want to be the arbiter of what is true, right? But I, I think I think two things. One fundamental thing is that when you think of conservative people, right, as an individual voters who live in Tallahassee, what do I think their 
understanding of the impact of U.S. debt on inflation is, I think it is it is none. I don't think they have any understanding of that. And likewise, do I think that you know a Democratic voter in New York understands modern monetary theory? No, they don't. But they both want to cheer for it, right? And it's like, what are they cheering for? They're cheering for something that they don't really understand because they're not economists. <laughs> and I think that what they're really doing is they're cheering for their tribe. You know, They're cheering for the thing that they think in their gut makes sense because it's what their people tell them to believe. And ultimately, this kind of goes back to our earlier point, right? Which is that if you just believe what your people tell you to believe because that's what you do, then you don't really understand anything and you're not really getting to the idea of consuming real truth, right? And this is not a conspiracy thing so much as it is a, like, I don't think that people hold genuine opinions on complex things that they don't know anything about. Nor do I think that, you know, a Republican voter in Tallahassee needs to fully understand the economic complexities of inflation. But I do think that we're kidding ourselves if we're like, oh, well, like, do I think that people truly hold this conservative value? Then no, I don't, I don't really think so. And the reason you can see that that is true is because the Republican Party now has a completely different foreign policy than it did, you know, under the last Republican president. You know, George Bush never saw a war he didn't like. And now, uh, you know, the idea of giving guns to Ukraine is complicated for some reason. So, like, I don't think that the average American voter holds strong beliefs on these things. I think it's more that people adopt the position of their party. Do I think that the conservative party itself, like, sort of the intellectual elite opinion in the conservative party, strongly believes in smaller government? I don't know. I think you can look at their actions in my lifetime and find it hard to believe that, right? Like the second Trump gets in, what do Republicans do? They issue tax cuts that increase the deficit. <laughs> like that doesn't seem like a party that's super concerned about fiscal discipline to me. Um, I think that maybe there's like an elite higher level plane where people think about these things and, Maybe there is a, like a conservative economist understanding, but I think the number of those people is, you know, less than half of a percent of the people of the United States. I don't know if that addresses your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the root of the question is, do you think the classic portrayals of both the Democratic and the Republican parties are fair or accurate? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast. Please leave the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To enjoy full-length video episodes, head over to YouTube. You can search Bro Nouveau or simply follow the link in the episode description below. If you or someone you know would make a fascinating guest for this kind of conversation, you can reach me via email. That address is contact at bronouveau.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. You know, I, I can't, I don't want to put words in other people's understandings. I'll tell you what I think of when I think of like the real difference between the two parties. I think that there are coalitions of people with shared interests that rotate and hop across parties over time, um, right? So the reason that I would identify as a Democrat, not a Republican, is because there's a coalition of people that think that gay people should be allowed to have kids and marry and have sex without going to jail. And all those people are in the Democratic Party, right? And as a gay man, that's the party I'm going to be along to because I want to do those things, right? The guy who was just elected as Speaker of the House, uh, he's a big uh, evangelical guy from Louisiana, and he has a religious podcast, and he thinks that you know gay sex should be illegal. So, like, <laughs> there are like fundamental identitarian issues 
that I think are important for the definitions of the parties. And when you have certain minority groups who's have existential questions, they're going to align with the party that is going to protect their existential sort of beliefs. I think that when you think about a coalition like Black Americans, Black Americans think that the Democratic Party is the party that gives a shit about them. And so that's why they're Democrats. And I think that that is more true than not. Um, and so I don't, I don't have any reason to think, to like sing the praises of the Democratic Party as like an institution, but I do think it's true that in the past, you know, since the 60s, Democratic Party is the one that has worked to advance, you know, the advances that have been made along racial equity lines have come from the Democratic Party. So I think that those are the core constituent groups inside of each inside of each political party are more tribal than big overarching theological concerns. I'll give you another example, right? Like evangelicals are Republican. Evangelicals have things that they want to do, right? They're very concerned about abortion, probably concerned about ethanol. <laughs> and so they all kind of group together in the Republican Party because that's where they can have power. Um, so I, don't, I and I think I think that you can see over time the big like strategic theoretical questions about what government should be are less important than those sort of more parochial uh, concerns of each group that creates the whole. Yeah, another way to look at it is that our time horizons are very short of our lives, yeah. <clears throat> so it's. The question of do I want to focus on medium-term, long-term ideas about the theories behind the party or do I want to think about what's going to be impactful in my lifetime, for example? Yeah, and it's also just kind of like even if there are cross-cutting intellectual ideas that sort of define what the parties are, um, those change like the parties themselves mean very little, right? Like you, you saw in the sixties, a huge realignment of um, white Southerners from the former democratic party to the current Republican party. And that really more than anything shaped the identity of what those two parties are. And that was just a switch, right? That was just a thing that changed before it was one thing. And now it's the other thing. And now the parties are like completely different about what they used to believe versus the pre and the post sixties. Um, I think if you if you want to have an overarching narrative of American history, I think one of them that is quite good is the cause of that flipping, right? Which was which was racial equity, right? Is the idea of the the, the temerity of Lyndon Johnson to <laughs> try to ensure that African Americans can vote in this country was enough to completely upend the political system. Um, so I think that that's one fault line, I, and I, I think it's unfair today to say that you know the republican party is the party that doesn't want people of color to vote but i do think that that is true for some people in the republican party and i also think that the through line of like how do we make the obvious problems around racial equity better in this country are ones that democrats are concerned with the republicans are not what what do you make of the argument that the welfare state mm, prevents people from succeeding because that's a pretty common talking point um, by conservative figureheads. I think it's a very stupid argument. I don't understand what would make you think that. <laughs> I also think that, so first of all, this is a side conversation, right? I'll answer your question directly, but there is a, I think, perception that people on welfare are people of color, and most people who receive welfare are white, and they're poor, and they're rural, and they live in rural areas. So it's just like that's just how the demographics of America are situated, and so most people who receive benefits receive are, are white people in, the, in sort of not in the big cities. So. Now take them to that and like use your use your use your brain a little bit, right? It's like okay, I have these poor kids who like can't afford to eat. If I give them food, they will become lazy. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like what? Why would that be the case? It's like I want to give these people access to like 
medical care. It's like, oh, well, don't do that or else they're going to become leeches on the system. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, we barely have a safety net compared to like other countries in the world. The little that we do do is insufficient to the need that exists. And there's literally no reason to believe that. Like, what evidence has anyone ever presented for the idea that like, oh, you know, this will make people lazy. Now, sure, you know, you can have people who abuse the system as in any system there are people that are going to abuse it but like why would you take those like sporadic instances okay here's the thing that would make me believe that right is if somebody was like okay i did a study and i looked at this program and i found that you know more than one percent of people were abusing it has anyone ever done that study like no because it doesn't exist it's a problem that doesn't exist it's the same way that like oh well you know all of these votes were stolen. And you're like, where is the evidence for that? And there's like, oh, there isn't any. And it's like, okay, well, then what are we talking about? Yeah, I actually did. I got in an argument with someone on, on this podcast about that. And I actually did go look for the evidence at one point. Because he kept being like, you just don't know. And, I'm, and I was, I'm not, I looked. Right, yeah. Looked well, first of all, you're... Right. <laughs> If, if you are going to allege that something is happening, then you need to prove it. It's not on me to disprove your lunatic fever dream, right? Like, you know, you can't you can't just, like, um, say something and be like, well, prove to me that it's wrong. It's like, no, dude, like, if you're going to, like, make something up, you need to prove that it's right. That's how society operates, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so on that, there, you know, our generation's kind of, civil rights moment so far was the, you know, 2020, there was a lot of energy towards uh, racial equality. Where do you, for you personally, like for the average person, you know, do you, do you think about that now these days? Is it something that you consider, you know, I, I almost want to ask like, what can the average person do, but it's not really useful because everyone has different motivations and levels of care but for you personally since that time is is that idea of racial progress something that you're passionate about yeah i think i think that um i think there are like there are a couple things right one is that i think that one of the great things that i saw in the communities that I'm a part of in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd is a willingness among people who are my age to talk directly about the realities of racial inequality in America. I think that people of my parents' generation, white people especially, it's very uncomfortable to talk about the sort of realities that, you know, when you look at where poverty, when you look at where inequality, when you look at how the distribution of resources is structured in America, all of the bad things are worse for communities of color, right? Mortality rates are worse for people of color. You know, when you think about, you know, live births, it's worse for people of color. When you think about, employment rate it's worse for people of color when you think about and obviously these are i'm praying with a blood brush here right there's just, these are these are averages it's a different story for different people in different places but on mass um homeownership rate right like when you think about how much money people have saved up in the bank when you think about what income people have all of this is <laughs> all of these factors are pointing to the reality that they're all worse for people of color than they are for white people. And it's like, okay, well, if literally every single metric, every single quantitative data point that we collect indicates that every outcome is worse for people of color, like, do we think that systemic racism exists, right? Like, yes. Like, like what, what are we talking about here? If all of the things are in the wrong direction, do we think that it is a systemic problem? Yes. Like, and I think that that, conversation is one that people were more reluctant to have before 2020 and they're more likely to have now after 2020 and i think that's a profoundly good thing because there was this i think sort of belief in the power of like people kind of felt like it was impolite to talk about 
racial realities in the United States before then. And I think that that was a problem. Um, the world did not, there's this like sort of pleasant fiction that Martin Luther King Jr. fixed racism and everything was fine. It's like, no, that is not what happened. And doing the bare minimum of ensuring, you know, access to democracy is not going to magically resolve 200 years and 300 years, 400 years of oppression. So having that conversation, I think, is profoundly good. And then I think the challenge to everyone is if you buy that, right, if you took that whole soliloquy I just gave and you're like, that makes sense to me, I agree with that. It's like, okay, what are we going to do about it? Because you don't just fix systemic problems by tweeting about it. You know, you fix problems by spending money on them. That's that's where this conversation needs to go is like, are we going to spend money on this or not? There are things we can do. We can tinker around the edges that are helpful. And that's a little bit flippant, right? There's lots of things we can do through the way that the laws are structured. But if you want to, you know, make things better, you got to spend money on it. So I think that's the conversation that the country is going to be having for the rest of my life. Um, and I think shifting in that direction is a good thing. And I'll, I think there's obviously still a lot of work to do, but I think that, that that was that's the takeaway I would have had from that moment. What would you use that money for? I don't think there's a single answer for this, right? Um, I think that... I think that... Let me take a step back. I think this is a good way to frame this is is like when you when you think about very progressive causes there are buzzwords that are associated with them and there's a whole spectrum of options around those buzzwords that um get i'm being obtuse here so i'll give you an example we think of defund the police right like that is a slogan and I think what people think of when they say defund the police ranges from like literal communists who think that there shouldn't be police <laughs> to people who think that what I think, right, which is that and what I know that police officers who I've worked with think that, which is that there are a lot of functions that police forces are asked to be responsible for that maybe the police shouldn't be doing and maybe it should be done by other people. Like I, I worked with this um, PPD officer, Philadelphia police department officer. And he told me all these stories about how like, you know, I go out there and I like find an old lady who is like in a bathtub covered in her own urine and I got to pull her up and help her. Right. Because there's nobody else there to do that. And it's like, why is this guy with a gun <laughs> like going to this lady's house to blow her out of a bathtub, right? There are lots of things that we have asked our police department to do because there's nobody else. And I think having a holistic process to think about, like, what do we want our cops to do? You know, and what, do we, what do we think other parts of the government can handle? And how do we allocate resources to reflect that so that police can do what the police need to do and that other people can take care of other things? Like, that's a more healthy way to think about it, right? And that whole spectrum of opinion exists within the, the the phrase defund the police. So that's an example. And then where I'm going next with this to answer your question is when you think of what reparations are, there's a whole spectrum of things there. Like some people, again, like literal communists are like, let's just cut checks to people of color and call it a day. And I don't necessarily think that that is a horrible idea. But I think that there is a whole one one way that I heard reparation described that really resonated with me was about making investments in communities so that those communities that face all of these challenging outcomes have the resources they need to succeed. Right. So, like, if the problem that we've identified in educational attainment exists between people of color and, and white people, it's like okay, we should fund the school systems for people of color. Right. Like, and if you think about how we fund the school systems, it comes from property tax. And we think about how, you know, the people who are most likely to own homes are most likely to be white people. And those homes have that higher value. So all the, the students who live in white communities go to these great schools because the property taxes and students from communities of color go to bad schools because their, their, their you know, property is worth less there. And then you think back to how 
you know, there's this whole redlining conversation about how, you know, mortgages were approved back in the day for people of color. And it, it all kind of comes together. So it's like, okay, if the problem is that we need to fix educational attainment and we want to reach parity between outcomes as like, I'm not saying that parity should be the goal, but if that's a goal you want to reach, then great. You got to spend money <laughs> on the school system for the communities of color, right? Like that's, that's what it comes down to. You have to invest the resources that we you need to fix the problems that you've identified. Is there, so the logic there is that educational attainment correlates to better outcomes. And I'm not, I'm not saying specifically that I think that if I had to pick one thing, it would be education. What I'm saying is that if you accept the premise that you have 50 flashing metrics where there's unequal achievement between the groups that we're talking about and you want to fix them, then it's not, you know, the education was just one example. To your question, like, do I think education is important? Yes, I do. And do I think that education corresponds with outcomes? Yes, I do. So when I hear that, I think of, because I'm on a entrepreneurial mindset, I think of offering employment to people to be able to save money so in the in the process of this is build a successful business, be able to pay you know more than living wage, offer benefits, these things. <laughs> Do you think that's something that could be a good lever to pull? Like one of the, I kind of hear um, starting a business as one of the drivers of the economy, but I I, I don't know if that's true. You know, is that? Yeah. So. So I used to work for the uh, San Francisco Office of Cannabis, as you're familiar with. And um, we had have a racial equity grant program. And the function of that program is to distribute money to entrepreneurs from communities who were negatively and disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Um, and so what that basically comes down to is if you have a business in San Francisco that's opened by an equity applicant, and let's just say that there's a lot of details here, but that's one of the criterion is if you or an immediate family member was arrested for cannabis possession during the war on drugs, let's say you have this person who was arrested and put into prison and then released. And now they're going to try and open a business in San Francisco to, you know, let's just say manufacture cannabis, right? So they, they make gummies or something. The city will take money that we were given by the state. And that money came from tax revenue from the cannabis market in the state, right? So the cannabis exists in California, it's sold, it's taxed. Some of that money comes back to San Francisco. San Francisco takes that money and it gives it to this person. And they say, use this money to open up your own business. That is a thing that happens. That is a thing that works. And that is a thing that, yeah, that's that's another way you could address this problem, right? It's like, if you want to reduce the racial wealth gap, you want to get this person started in this business, the state can help them get into it. Sure, I think that that is a approach. I don't think that for any of these questions right now, like we know what will work at a national level. And I don't think that it is even necessarily true that one thing could work at a national level. But like, if you ask me, is that a good idea? I'd say, hell yeah, let's try that and see how it goes. Awesome. One of the other kind of big ideas that is floating around um, is there's mostly from the Republican side pu- pushing you know this fatigue narrative around Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, and I think you su- you summarized very well like you invade invaded a sovereign nation. That's on you, bro. <laughs> We don't we don't condone that. <laughs> yeah. To, to be flippant as far as like why the US is supporting Ukraine, but I guess to put it in perspective, how much money from our actual budget in a percentage point or if you know a ballpark is going to Ukraine and does it have a you know, the kind of like the kind of common comparison is like we have all these domestic issues and we're sending this money abroad, but it kind of feels like a false equivalency to me. Yeah. So, um, and I, I, 
I'll take one step back and say that like I think I don't think that the United States support for Ukraine is just contingent on like supporting the world order, right? I think that there is a there's many reasons why a country as big as ours does anything and you know one of them is that we just don't like the Russians, right? And we inherited that from the Cold War. And we maybe I'm speaking of certain kinds of politicians, right? But like I also think that there is a perception of Russia as a strategic threat, right? Like I know for a fact that the people around Mitch, Mc- I don't know for a fact, I read that people say that there is a perception that the people around Mitch McConnell's office think that, you know, the Ukraine war is great because um, it weakens Russia and it's cheap way to do it. To answer your question about like, is this money effective? It's like, when you think about the budget of the Pentagon, which is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars a year, does the money that we're spending on Ukraine matter? Like, no, it doesn't matter at all in terms of the scheme of the budget. Moreover, when you think about what we're actually spending money on, what we're spending money on is weapons that we manufacture <laughs> and give to them, right? So we're like spending money on a, a shell factory oh, in Alabama <laughs> that we then ship over there, right? Yeah, so like that money goes directly. Right. That's, a, that's a local stimulus program, essentially. We're not selling so, Chinese shells. Yeah, no. We're, we have our own arms. Manu- <laughs> we have our own arms <laughs> manufacturing industry in America, and those are what we're providing to them. And so, yeah, we're kind of taking money out of one hand, putting it in the other hand, and the missiles go to Ukraine. So it is not a substantial or it's an immaterial amount of money in terms of the American federal budget. And it's not even necessarily like we're just writing them checks. It's like a lot of that it's going into our own economy. So yeah, it's a it's a stupid talking point. Okay. Awesome. Well we're coming up on time. As this is the Bro Nouveau podcast, we're you're not gonna get away without talking a little bit about your your mindset and moral compass. So when you think about being a good man, what do you think about and what are the principles that drive you? Um, I think that morality is something that different people place different emphasis on things. I don't think there's a right answer to that question. When I try and make a decision, I think that in life you have a lot of choices, things you can do, things that you don't have to do. And a lot of the emphasis that you use when you make a choice is what would be better for me. But I think the moral thing to do is like, what do I think is right? You know, like in this situation, like trying to remove myself from what is best for me and like what I think would be best for whatever it is that you believe your religion or your society or like, what do you think is right? And trying to abstract away from what is best for me and focusing on what do I think is right? So it's kind of squishy, but. Nice. Love it. And the last kind of rapid fire question would just be around, do you have any reading recommendations or books that have shaped um, how you think or books, just any books you recommend to the, to the audience? Um, I think, I think I'll, I'll give you a book at the end, but I think if you want to consume media, well, you kind of have to pay for it. Um, and I think if you're interested in, in good coverage of foreign policy, like we are talking about, um, I think the economist has, has pretty good foreign policy coverage. I think that they have people who know what they're talking about. It's a bit of a Western neoliberal shill perspective, um, but I think it's it's well reported. Uh, so if you want to learn more about how the world operates, I'd recommend The Economist. Also, very good on the economy, The Economist. <laughs> if you want to learn more about how that happens, um, I'm reading a book right now that informs some of my thinking for this conversation, which is one of these books that made the round in the liberal milieu after everyone was like, I don't understand Trump won an election. How could that happen? Uh, but it's actually a pretty interesting book uh, and it's called anti-intellectualism in American life. It's by Richard Hofstetter. And it's a book about this. It's this guy from the fifties or sixties. I forget when, and he's writing about how Americans hate like educated people. And it's, it's just kind of funny because he's like screaming about how Dwight Eisenhower is an idiot. <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting reason for like, <laughs> it's interesting both because he has some, it's an interesting intellectual framework around like how, people think about 
being educated and being an intellectual, but it's also interesting because he's like picking fights with people from the 50s and 60s, which is just kind of funny to read. So it's a good book. Awesome. Well, John, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts on the world. Any any parting shots or usually I plug somebody's website or whatever they're promoting. Uh, I'm not of the episode. Uh, I'll plug the uh, Bro Nouveau podcast, the finest, the finest, the finest that we have. <laughs> bah, 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 bah. There it is. All right. Thanks, John. Appreciate yeah, man. It. Talk to you soon. Bye.